Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are a married couple, active LDS, um, husband's a seminary teacher at our local high school, Reed and Amber Blackburn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Um, just by way of background, we are going to talk about um, Reed and Amber losing their second child who was stillborn. Her name is Tessa. Um, her birth date is May 18th, 2018. So that's over two years ago. And we're going to talk about just um, what that's like. That's a road I don't know anything about. Um, and the purpose of doing this is just for them to share their insights to other couples that have lost a child or those of us that are trying to say the right thing and do the right thing for a couple that we love, perhaps a family member who's lost a child. Um, I became aware of Reed when our youngest son, Ben, was at Cottonwood High School. And Ben came home and talked about Brother Blackburn. He said, Dad, we talked about Blacks in the Priesthood. And Brother Blackburn taught us how to navigate that as faithful Latter-day Saints. And Dad, Brother Blackburn showed us the Mormon and Gay website and talked a little bit about Gay Latter-day Saints. And he was just glad to talk about some of these issues that we don't talk about too much. So I have never gone to back-to-school night and met with a seminary teacher, but I said to myself, I have to find Brother Blackburn and thank him. So I went to back-to-school night at Cottonwood, made my way over to the seminary, and walked into Brother Blackburn's office and just thanked him for being a wonderful seminary teacher and talking about these more complicated subjects um, in a faithful way. I wanted our children to know about these topics, especially in high school before they served missions, so they were prepared to be missionaries, and these topics wouldn't surprise them. And so I just recognized that Reed represents many of the men and women who are seminary teachers and institute teachers that are talking about these more complicated subjects. And um, they're some of my heroes for the things they're doing for our youth and our young adults. Um, Reed also has a cousin, Leanne Tressler, who's now married. Tell us her married name. I'm, I stumped you. <laughs> I can't, I'm not sure what her married name is. She now. just got married listeners. So we don't expect everybody to keep up, but <laughs> Leanne is episode 176. She is um, a mother who lost her husband to suicide and then her oldest son to suicide. And Leanne came and was on the podcast and talked about that complicated space. And Reed was here with her. That episode has well over 10,000 listens. And Leanne is somebody who's talking about really complicated stuff in a faithful way. So with that introduction, anything that I've said that you'd like to correct, either of you? Um, Tessa's birthday is actually May 16th, 2018. That's an so important were, thing to that correct. That is an important thing. We hold that day very sacred. So Amber, tell us, tell us about your family. Who, tell us how many children you have. Um, I grew up with my mom. My parents were divorced when I was young. And so I grew up with my mom and then later lived with my grandparents. So I have three siblings that live in West Virginia with my father and um, my stepmom. And then I have two siblings that live here with just here in Utah. And um, yeah, so I have two sisters here that I have one who's older and one who is younger than me. And how did you meet Reed? 
Uh, we went up to Utah State. We both are Aggies. And so we met up there in Logan. We went on a spring break service trip um, with the Spanish club. And so we met down in Mexico while we were doing some work at an orphanage. So how long were you in Mexico doing that work? Um, we were there for about a week, was it? Mm-hmm. About a week. And had either of these certain missions, is that how either of you learned Spanish or was that separate from that? I don't know Spanish, but Reed knows Spanish. And that's my, had a roommate who was part of the Spanish club, but Reed was part of the Spanish club. Yeah. I served in Madrid, Spain. So from 2001, 2003. And who was more interested in who first? Was this Reed pursuing Amber or Amber pursuing Reed? Or is there not agreement on this subject? (laughs) I was definitely more interested. So yeah, we were on a bus ride down into Mexico and I remember just Amber sitting in a seat and it was probably about midnight and I was super, super excited. Everyone was asleep and I was still awake and I tapped her on the shoulder to talk to her and she talked to me for a minute or two and fell back asleep. And then I tapped her shoulder again and made her wake up again because I really wanted to talk to her. So that's kind of how it started. And the second time she stayed awake and, and, uh, that week we just had a wonderful time and really, uh, as just getting to know each other and, really enjoyed being with each other and kind of feeling, I I just felt how special she was right away with my first conversation with, well, the second one, the first one she fell asleep (laughs) on me. So the second conversation, I just knew she was different. She was special. Do you remember this, Amber? Do you remember this bus ride? Yes. I remember it very, very well. (laughs) What stood out from Reed besides he was the first guy that woke you up in the middle of the night on a bus ride? Um, I don't know. I think that, I don't think the bus ride really I would think I was just tired and it was like, oh man, who's this guy that keeps waking me up? But as we were in Mexico and we kind of like served alongside, I remember painting the side of an orphanage with him and just standing by each other and painting for hours and hours and just chatting. And he was just a good guy and just fun and funny. And so, yeah, I just enjoyed being around him. That's great. And you eventually got married and tell our listeners, Amber, about your children. So we have Hiram. He's our first. And um, we were married in 09 and then um, had Hiram in 2014. So it took us a while. I mean, for we're both teachers. So I taught kindergarten for five years. And then we decided to start trying to have a family and just wasn't working out, wasn't working out. So we eventually went in for like infertility and, um, found out that in vitro or IVF was going to be our best option. So we went right to IVF. We started IVF. And, um, as anybody knows, that's gone through it. It's quite the journey, very emotional, very rough on your body, but, um, yeah, we got, we, didn't vitro. We got pregnant the first time and which was kind of a miracle. We were pretty surprised and we had Hiram and no complications. All was well. He was a big baby. How big? um, 10, five. That's a big baby. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. He's a big guy. And so we were just over the moon, just excited. Um, and then yeah, just, we had a couple embryos that were frozen from that. 
And so a couple years later, we decided, oh, let's try again. So we transferred those embryos and they didn't take. And so that was our first um, like negative with IVF. And so that kind of hit us hard because we, our first experience was, you know, pretty, pretty positive and easygoing. And then, um, so we decided to start again. So we started all over with IVF and had three embryos and we got two, we transferred two, and then we ended up getting an ectopic pregnancy. And share with our listeners what that is. I, th- I think I understand that. Yeah. So an ectopic pregnancy is when the embryo is implants in your fallopian tube. So instead of your uterus, it's in your fallopian tube and it starts growing there. And so it's pretty rare for that to happen with IVF because they yeah, I was going to ask, is that more or less likely? It's pretty rare. It's really unlikely because they transfer it straight to your uterus. Wow. And so ours just happened to keep on going and went straight up to my fallopian tube and started growing there. And so that was a really painful and they caught it quickly since it was IVF and we were able to do. Just curious for our yeah. listeners, was it symptoms that led you to, to that finally to have that diagnosed or was it just part of the normal screening process that they realized this was an eptoptic pregnancy? So kind of how it works Unless is, it gets too personal. And, oh, no, that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> it just might be helpful for listeners to understand the signs of an eptoptic pregnancy, if I'm saying that right. Yeah. So we, um, when you do IVF, you do a transfer. That's when they transfer the embryo into the uterus. And then you wait like 10 to 14 days and you go in for a blood test. And that blood test will tell you like, yes, you're pregnant or no, you're not pregnant. So we went in for that blood test and they were like, oh, you're pregnant. Like your, your HCG levels are high, like you're pregnant. And so we were really thrilled and excited about that. But then I started having some side pains and they're like, oh, you know, it might just be your body sure. cramping or, and so we just kind of kept going. And then at about four weeks, you go in, so you do transfer. And then when you're about at four weeks, you go in for an ultrasound just to make sure that that embryo is growing. When With a typical pregnancy, you don't go in until about 10 weeks. So at four weeks, we went in because it was IVF, had an ultrasound and they're like, oh, you're not pregnant. Like we don't see anything in your uterus. And I'm like, okay. And so they did another blood test and they're like, your blood tests are saying that you're pregnant. And so that's kind of how they eventually figured out that it was ectopic because they couldn't see it on the, they couldn't see an embryo on the ultrasound, but the blood test was saying that I was pregnant. So ended up having to do medication to a lot of times ectopic pregnancies will end up, you'll have to end in surgery or a fallopian tube will burst. And that's really painful, but we didn't get to that point. We ended up doing, since it was early enough, we caught it that we did medication and they say it's like a chemotherapy drug. It's called Methotrex 8 or something like that. But um, anyways, it just like kills any growing living cells in your body. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. And so 
that was pretty rough because all we wanted was to be pregnant. And we had the first positive, And so we were so excited. And then it was negative. And so, and then it was ectopic. And so then we had to go ahead and not have that pregnancy anymore. So it was pretty sad. Really sad. Yeah. So that was kind of our first, our first big heartache was the negative. And then our really big heartache was that ectopic pregnancy because it felt so close. Yeah. Keep telling your story. Yeah. So then we had one more frozen embryo. And so we, after I kind of recovered from that ectopic pregnancy, we transferred that last frozen embryo. And we like, each time you transfer and each time you go through like all this medication, it just gets harder on your body. Um, My body reacts really well to the medication. So they, it's called hyperstimulating. So I usually get really sick. And um, so anyways, this is our fourth IVF and it was our last frozen embryo. So we said like, oh, you know, I think this has got to be it. You know, it's, it's really expensive also. And like this, our fourth and final embryo, let's just transfer it and just say, at this point, we're feeling like this is it. And so we transferred and I don't think we had really high hopes. We felt, you know, pretty down. And then we found out we were pregnant and we got a positive. And um, so we were pretty shocked, but very excited. And then went through the pregnancy. All was well. It was a very normal, healthy pregnancy. You did that ultrasound at four weeks. Did the ultrasound at four weeks. This little baby was in the right spot. Baby growing. Yep. And then went in at ten weeks with my normal OB, and there was the baby growing, the heartbeat, and so yeah, it was just this regular pregnancy, and we just kept on going. And then at about. 35 weeks, I went in for a scheduled appointment and um, was in the doctor's office. My OB is really great. She's been so wonderful. She was doing the heartbeat monitor and she was like, I can hear a heartbeat, but I think it's yours. Like I'm having a hard time hearing this baby's heartbeat. She's like, it's probably fine, but let's just go into the ultrasound room just to make sure and at this point, I'm feeling, you know, like, oh, it's probably fine, but starting to get a little nervous. Sure. I'm by myself because it's just a regular, Reed was at work and it was just a regular scheduled appointment. We went into the ultrasound and um, she starts like rubbing the monitor over my stomach and it's just, and she keeps looking and... um. I could feel her hand. And that's the thing I'll always remember. Her hand sorry, um, started shaking. And she looked at me and she's like, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm so sorry, but this baby is not living anymore. The, the baby's heart has stopped. And so I was just shocked. I didn't expect it. Um, it has about 35 weeks. And tell our listeners the timing of this in relation to Mother's Day. Um, this was the Tuesday 
right after Mother's Day. So on Mother's Day, I remember thinking like, oh, like I haven't felt, I haven't felt this baby move in a little bit. You know what I mean? So I'm like kind of pushing on my stomach. I'm like, oh, there you go. Like, I think I felt something. So kind of just brushed it off, but was kind of feeling very anxious to get into my just regular appointment that following Tuesday. And so, yeah, I think it was still like I had just put it out of the back of my mind that nothing, I'm at 35 weeks, like nothing should go wrong. Right. We've, got through all the hard stuff. And then, yeah, when we found out at that appointment, it's just devastating, devastating. So cried and the doctor cried with me. She grabbed another doctor. She's like, I just want to make sure. So then another doctor came in, did another ultrasound. And anyways, she was very sweet. And she was like, would you like me to call your husband? Like, should I get somebody here? And I was really worried about Reed finding out over the phone. So I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I'll just drive home. So I drove myself home. And Reed wasn't home. So I called him and just said, hey, are you coming home soon? Like, I really want to talk to you. Yeah, she couldn't quite make it through the phone call. And I knew something was up right away with what she was saying and was at that moment, kind of expecting the worst. Yeah, so we Did came. you know it was around your baby that hadn't been born, Reed, when you knew? I thought it might be, you know, just because the reaction was so, you know, that's not the way she was talking and just breaking, she broke down right away. And I thought that, you know, I knew she had that appointment that day. So I thought it was probably something to do with that. I did not, I don't think my first thought was that the baby was, wasn't alive anymore, um, that maybe there was some bad news, but I wasn't expecting the worst news. So so we came home and yeah, I just shared with him the news and we both just cried and yeah, I mean, we had some options to make some decisions to make. We had some options and our doctor said that we could come in later that night to deliver or we could wait and deliver the following day. And so we decided that we would wait and deliver the following day. So. Yeah, that night was one of the worst nights that we've probably ever had together. I mean, you know, just sleeping and knowing that that baby wasn't alive, going to bed, knowing that there was a baby inside her tummy that uh, wasn't alive was was extremely difficult. So um, it was nice to be together, to have each other. Uh, for that night, but we just kind of prepared for the next day. Um, it was going to have to be a C-section. Um, they weren't sure how long, um, so we named our baby Tessa. They weren't sure how long Tessa had been passed away. So they weren't sure in like what condition she would be um, if she'd been passed away, you know, for a while, then they say that the body's very fragile. And so we were going to do a C-section because she was still up high. She hadn't dropped yet. And so we scheduled the C-section for the next day. And it was in the evening. So we kind of had all day to wait for it. And yeah, it was just kind of, we had family come and um, 
give us some blessings. Reed's brother came and gave us a blessing and his mom came and yeah, we just prepared for pretty much the worst. It was the worst day already, but it felt like it was just going to keep getting worse. You're doing a great job. I hope our listeners could just reach through the mics. A lot of them want to hug you right now and just you're doing such a great job of talking about this. Just keep sharing your story. Yeah, so the next day, we so we slept that night. Like Reed said, it was really difficult, and um, we didn't get very much sleep. Just cried most of the night. And um, then we went in that evening, Reed and I, and our little boy Hiram went with my sister. He stayed the night with my sister. And um, we went in, and... They got us all prepped for C-section, and we had a C-section, and Tessa was born. It kind of prepared us, you know, in some, for the worst, and, you know, the possibility that she may not be whole when she Mm -hmm. came out because we didn't know how long she had been passed for. So uh, when we had her... I know, um, and everybody has different experiences with this. We have a lot of friends, but for us, we were blessed in that. I don't know if blessed is the right word, but she came out just perfect, just a uh, whole, uh, full head of hair. What uh, color hair? Just dark hair. Dark hair. Um, and she was just really, really beautiful. And so that was a special moment for us, you know, through all that hardship to be able to have her physical body there with us and and to see her and to celebrate that moment um uh and that was that was really great she was five pounds 15 ounces and just as perfect as you could be yeah she was so beautiful and um one thing that was really sweet that we didn't think of um is when we found out that Tessa had passed away Reed called his principal at um, seminary and she, I'm not, I can't remember exactly the details, but she said, oh, like, I know somebody who's gone through this. You need to look into um, like this photography company. And it's this photography company that does, will come to the hospital and take pictures um, for free. And um, it's like a service that they do for those who have passed away. And I want to say it's called um, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep or something like that. So I was just like, I don't know if we want that. Like this just seems because we're just so sad, right? Like I'm like, I don't even know if we want to document this. This feels so tragic and sad. But we scheduled a photographer and she came out to the hospital and took pictures of our little Tessa and took pictures of us as a family. And uh, we treasure those pictures. So we're super, really grateful for those pictures. And I think anybody that we've talked to that's gone through situations like this have just loved those pictures. So I feel like that would be one thing that if we could suggest anything is just have take as many pictures as you can. You don't feel like it in the moment. So you don't want to in the moment, but uh, we look back on those a lot and we love those. So yeah, we had 
that we had tested that day, that night. And then she was beautiful. Tell us how you came to the name Tessa. Um, I have a great grandma on my mother's side who is named Tess Elmo. That's like her full name, Tess Elmo. And so, and she was a really special woman to me. I knew her and grew up with her. And um, anyways, we just loved the name and we just, and I love that. I love my great grandma. And so we decided on Tessa to kind of honor her. And then her middle name is Jodine, which is my mom's name. So Tessa Jodine. And it's just like two very powerful. Traditional names. Yes. Wonderful women in my life. And so we thought it was very fitting. Yeah. Joe, uh, Amber's mom, Jodine, um, has had a uh, harder past. And one of the things that we've since we've had Hiram, she's just been the best grandma you can imagine. And so it was really fun to name this child after uh, Amber's mom. Um, and she's just been the best grandma you could ask for, for Hiram, and uh, has always been super, super sweet about Tessa as well, has always remembered her. Um, we, she's buried up in Sandy, and um, Amber's mom often goes up and we'll, we'll go visit the grave, and it's got some kind of decoration because. Uh, a lot of times Amber's family goes and leaves stuff there. So, um, yeah, we just love that name. Tessa Joe, Tessa Jodine. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, I love it. that. And I, I thought of both of them, those two Tessas together in heaven. And I wondered if their bond is even stronger because you've named her Tessa. And I wondered if that's connected them even in a, in a more deep way. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely felt, you know, strength from the other side and who knows. But yeah, we feel like we've gotten some very powerful moments where we felt strengthened. Um, And yeah, I think it's, we just have angels on the other side watching out for us. And I'm sure that my great grandma, Tess, is what she went by, was, is one of those that she's there for us and taking care of her. Talk about doing such a good talk. Just keep sharing your story. Um, Tell our listeners if you do a baby blessing and um, just, you know, the time between the hospital and and the funeral um, and just more of the story. Yeah. So um, we had the baby and um, like we said, she was perfect. And so we got to spend three days. On the 16th of May. On the 16th of May. (laughs) And we got to have her for three days in the hospital. And uh, those three days, like, so everything that had led up to that, we just didn't know what to expect. But those three days, I think, were better than anything we could have imagined. And we'd received some advice and some counsel and some different things. Um, some people had told us to try and make as many memories as we could with her. So they had what was called, in our hospital room, they had what was called an incubator. A cuddle cot. A cuddle cot. Plus. <laughs> Which... Um, <laughs> This cuddlecock kind of kept the body cold and kept the body whole. So we got to, you know, she just stayed in the room with us for three days. And so uh, people made dresses. We had um, the hospital give us a dress and we would change her clothes. We would change a diaper. We would wash her hair. We just held her and held her and held her as much as we could um, and just created as many memories as we could for those three days. Um, We... My bishop, uh, and I hadn't even thought of this, he had, my bishop was amazing at that time. He had called and 
just asked, have you thought about giving it a name and a blessing? Hadn't even crossed my name, crossed my mind. But that night, you know, just in probably one of the most spiritual experiences that I had was able to put my hands on her head and give her a name and a blessing. And, you know, that just kind of made it real uh, that for right now that we on this earth, we were going to be a family of four for a couple of days. And uh, that was really special for us. So um, during those three days, we had a lot of visitors come and that meant the world to us as well. Everybody that could come visit um, people uh, reacted in different ways. A lot of them wanted to hold her and that meant a lot to us to see her being held by different people. Why did that mean a lot to you that your baby people on the hold? Um, Tessa. Yeah, maybe we can both answer this, but I think it just kind of, you know, she's part of the family and uh, that felt like they wanted to welcome her and be with her. And I know for us to see that it was special, but also for those who held her as they've talked about that, that was a really special time for them. They, I remember I had a little sister and other people held her too, but I remember my little sister kind of, you know, touching her and not being afraid of that and wiping her hair and just really caressing and, and being with her. And I could see that she was having a special experience. So it was special for me to see others having the same kind of experience I had had in bathing her and holding her. They, they were able to experience that as well for a little bit. Yeah, I think um, one thing that we really liked about it is we were really concerned that um, that like Tessa wouldn't be remembered or um, just like thought of because it's not like we brought a baby home for everybody to, you know, love on and remember and have memories about. And so it was really sweet to have family members come up we had some friends come up and um, just hold her and love her. And I don't know, we just got to share her with other people. And I think that was really special because she had already, just in those few days that we got to hold her, made such a profound impact on our life. Um, and so it was sweet to share that with other people and to have other people like love her as much as we did. And so it was just really, really beautiful and probably one of the harder things we did was leave the hospital because we had to leave her there. And it was Ah, just so difficult because we had to make a lot of decisions in the hospital. We had to decide before we left the hospital where she was going to be buried. We had to decide if we were going to do a funeral. We had to decide on a mortuary. We had to decide on all these things so that we could sign papers to say, you know, who is coming to take the body after we leave. And it's really not fair what they, <laughs> those three days, the decisions you have to make. But um, again, we had good support. Amber's dad came out from West Virginia. He had driven three days to be there with us. Uh, my mom was there with some of these funeral decisions, decisions that we didn't want to make. You know, I remember uh, 
one of they we ended up making a decision and uh, they wanted to know you know what part of this uh, cemetery we wanted to bury her in and they took me and amber out on a golf cart to choose a spot and it was bumpy and it was just the worst ride like amber was four days post four days post every c-section bump amber was feeling and it was just like uh like can you just give us some time or or make the decisions for us and so anyways the the people at the at the mortuary were more than good to us it was just a hard situation and where she's buried now like we can ask for a better place it's right it's right in Sandy. It overlooks a um, just a valley and just it's a really valley. Beautiful. You can see the temples. You can see two of the temples, and kind of just reminds you of family. And that while we miss Tessa, we'll be with her again, and we visit that grave all the time. We want to move closer to it and <laughs> be as close as possible to it. So it's just a really special. It's become a sacred spot for us. There's a couple segments. There's some things you've said that no one's ever said in my life that I've never connected the dots. I, um, I've never had anybody close to me, really close, lose a child. Everybody I've lost in my life is an adult. And there seems, and I've never interacted with a deceased body before. And the, all I've seen is once someone's deceased, they leave the hospital or the home or a scene of an accident and they go to the morgue and there's no subsequent, and maybe, and I've never had the blessing of doing this. I've never dressed a body. Um, I've never interacted with a body that family members do in a normal way to prepare for a viewing and stuff like that, like dressing a parent, both my parents are alive. Um, so that I've never thought of those three days you've had in the hospital. And my my limited intuition would be, well, the best thing to help you heal is just move as quickly again to the funeral, not have you interact with this deceased child and see the body and potentially be re-traumatized by just re-experiencing what had happened. So my natural intu intuition is exactly the opposite of what's the right thing to do. And, and how helpful that was for you. And when you talk about changing your diaper and combing her hair and having other people hold her and giving a blessing, read where you can lay your hands on your daughters. I just recognize what this is, this is about a beautiful moment as anybody's ever described in a really difficult situation, but how healing obviously doesn't heal everything. Then I thought of Tessa, and I thought she's watching all this, and she's watching. Everybody needs to know people are loved, and all the and for her to watch all these people interacting with her and showing love to her, I've wondered how that made her feel to see all these people that she's known, if they're family from the premortal life, interact with her this way. To see her own father give her a blessing and change her diaper. What acts of love? You, I mean, that's a beautiful moment that I think I'm just getting a little glimpse into how beautiful a moment that is. That's really just sacred. And then when you say we didn't want to leave the hospital, of course you didn't. You didn't want that to end. You don't want to bring close. Sometimes on the outside, I want to bring closure to your grief by let's have a funeral. Let's kind of get over with this. Let's everybody get back to normal. So 
but I recognize that's not really ministering. That's just sort of wanting to make everything back to normal for me versus recognizing how the healing and helpful this can be in the grieving process. That's a really good, that's very helpful. Thank you. We've had, I have some people who will post pictures of their deceased child. Sorensons that have been in the podcast have done that. They will often post pictures, these tender pictures, and I'm glad they do it. Um, I can tell it's a deceased child, probably, you know, because I know the family, but it's just, it's a member of their family. It's a beautiful thing that they're doing. And I think it honors their child who's passed away and the whole experience instead of let's don't talk about it or I love the pictures and how helpful that is. Yeah. So keep sharing. And I, one of, and I, I don't want to take over your story here, but as a, so as a temple worker, and we're not in the temple right now, they've shown us some training films. Have you seen this film where a couple comes in that has just lost their baby? You heard about that film? I don't think so. I don't think we I haven't have. seen it. Because um, I know you're not temple workers, but they're trying to teach us in the temple to not um, judge people <laughs> and just love everybody. So they have a couple that shows up to the temple in in obviously distressed and not dressed in in church clothes and the re, and the temple the person accepting the recommends you know invites them in and they explain that they've just learned they've lost their baby and everything changes for all of all the temple workers because they understand why they're in distress and why they she's just come from the doctor's office and he's just come from work and they're meeting at the temple not dressed in church clothes and I'll never forget the lessons that taught me about not, I mean, yeah, as they showed them coming in the temple, it was pretty dramatic how untemple looking they looked, <laughs> yeah. quote unquote. And it was pretty powerful. And of course, that's, we would want everybody to feel welcome in the temple. We have no understand, understanding the backstory of why someone might present themselves in a situation that we at blush think, well, don't quite measure up to where they should be for this situation, but it's exactly where they wanted to be. And I know the temple's been very helpful. So that thought came to my mind. Way back to the infertility, one of the things I've been trying to do when I become aware of couples that have fertility problems is not try to figure out what's going on. If it's, if it's the woman's fault or the man's fault, or I just thought that's probably none of my business. <laughs> and I shouldn't, if they want to, if it's a close friend and they want to share that part of the, what's going on, that's fine. But I figure if I spend mental energy on that part of the story, I'm going to miss the chance to really minister them and help them. And sometimes I don't need to satisfy my own curiosity that way, but I can just move past that and just put my arms around a couple who's experiencing infertility without trying to sort of understand why. So now back to you. <laughs> um, we've kind of left off at the funeral. Yeah, so we left the hospital. We had already made all these decisions on where to go. Um, and that was really difficult. And then we had a funeral, probably. We left the hospital on a Thursday. And then we had the funeral just a few days afterwards. So it was like a pretty quick thing. Um, so we went to the mortuary and got to dress Tessa and... Um, some really sweet, there's like a really sweet organization that we've worked with called Share Parents of Utah. And they came to the hospital and 
gave us dresses for Tessa because she was really small. So sometimes, and they even have dresses for babies of all, of all, you know, gestational, like, and um, they did hand and foot molds of Tessa. And so anyways, they were a big resource to us to help us through. And they were able to like get us a dress and we got a dress for Tessa to dress her in. And we spent the day getting her all ready. And then we had just a small family funeral right there at the mortuary and then went up to her graveside. And yeah, it was a very emotional, it was like leaving the hospital was very difficult because it felt like saying goodbye to her. And then the funeral was like a, a second time. Like we got to see her again. And then we had to say goodbye. And so it was very difficult, but we had some beautiful support. And I think that that's one thing that has carried us through was just the support of different organ, this organization, share parents, and then friends and family and our doctor too. She showed up to the funeral and it wow. was pretty small, but she's, our doctor's been amazing. Uh, every doctor should be a woman in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was a doctor. So, um, but she's just been really, really amazing to Amber. And so anyways, we, yeah, we loved, we loved uh, seeing her again and dressing her. And, you know, this is just kind of a small memory, but I remember the, I don't know if it was a fan or something, but something was blowing her hair and we just couldn't get it to stay in the place like it was <laughs> supposed to. And this it was beautiful, just, dark hair. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of a glimpse where we just laughed. And I don't know how much we had laughed in the last few days, but we were just laughing that we could not get this hair to stay. And she had this big fluffy hair and <laughs> it was a blow dryer. They were oh, that's right. putting wax sometimes. Um, so like her body, since it's so fragile... Um, a lot of times, and we were able to hold Tessa and she had some, what they call a skin slip. And so it's like she had some red spots on her arm and on her legs and a little bit on her face where like the skin had slipped, uh -huh. which is really common. Uh -huh. And um, so they were putting a little like wax on there to like do like makeup and stuff. And so they were melting it with a blow dryer and it kept blowing her hair everywhere. Great and it memory. was just like so sweet and we loved it. But yeah, it's just like sweet to have those memories with Tessa because after the funeral, we went home and it was just, just felt empty. And um, we had so many great neighbors and friends and family that came over and, you know, visited and just checked in on us. But it's, difficult because it's hard for people to know what to say. A lot of times when you have somebody pass away that's close to you, you can say, oh, tell me about them. Like, oh, I remember when they did this or that. And with Tessa, we just had Interesting. no memories, right? And no experiences with her. And so it's difficult for people to talk to you about your child because there's no background. It's just like retelling the hospital story over and over and over and over again. And that's very traumatizing and very, I mean, we're happy to share because we love, we love to talk about Tessa as much as we could, but you just have very limited 
things to talk about. And so I felt like that was really difficult. So it was sweet to have just those small little memories that we could share. And everybody was really good and did a really good job at trying to help us. But yeah, it's just difficult. It's a hard situation for everybody, um, for us as the grieving parents and for those that want to grieve with you. It's a very difficult situation. Yeah, we learned a lot that year. Um, and it was a really tough year, but you know, uh, just some basic things like when do you go back to church and, you know, just seeing people, um, how do people react to this? And, you know, do they give you the sad face right away? And, and, you know, I thought I wouldn't know how to react to someone that had gone through this, but you know, it's, and I don't know, it's hard to speak for everyone, but for us, when people asked us about Tessa and said her name, it was really nice. And, um, you know, Amber had a very special bond with her, carrying her for those eight months. And so sometimes people would ask Amber about her and she'd get emotional and start crying. And the people would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Amber said, no, please don't apologize. I'd rather cry and talk about her than not talk about her and pretend like pretend that she wasn't there, pretend that it never happened. And so, you know, we kind of learned that and, and, and when they would apologize, Amber would say, no, thank you. Thank you for asking about her. You know, I enjoy talking about her. And even though I'm crying, like I'd rather cry and talk than not talk and forget. So um, that was one of the things that kind of took us, that we learned through it. Another one is, you know, it just, it, in some ways it takes a toll on a marriage. Me and it's Amber honest. learned a lot about each other and that there's not one way to grieve. We grieved very differently. Um, and we had to learn to accept and, and appreciate the way each other grieves. Uh, we also healed differently. So, you know, you're taught your typical and in LDS answers that you read the scriptures and you go to the temple and these kind of things will help you out. And I'm pretty traditional that way. Those things did help me, but you know, our first experience back to the temple, um, I was so excited for Amber to come through the veil. I don't know if <laughs> to, to see her. And, uh, after we had been through the ceremony and Amber had had a really, really rough experience going through the veil. And so we continue to learn, but, but for me, and I'll let Amber talk about her, how she kind of healed. But for me, those things helped me, you know, um, reading scriptures, going to church, uh, going to the temple, some of those traditional answers, but they weren't always what helped out Amber. Yeah, sometimes Reed would send me like, oh, I read this conference talk today and it was so great. It like was so helpful. And I was like, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Like the last thing I wanted to do was read a conference talk or I don't know, read my scriptures or pray even. Like I just felt so, I don't know, just down. And um, I don't think that I was that I ever doubted or questioned, you know, my faith, but just that definitely questioned like why this had to happen to us. And like, that's not, that's not bringing me comfort. Like as I would read general conference talks or the scriptures, I didn't feel comforted. And a lot of times people would say like in very kind and meaningful ways, like, well, aren't you just so glad that we at least know that families can be together forever. And I'm like, Yes, I believe that. But right now, all I want is Tessa here. Like, I don't want her in eternity. I want her now. And so I felt like that was 
really difficult. And so, yeah, like Reed said, we just grieved so differently. So like he would offer comfort in like these ways that I didn't feel comforted by. And so I felt like to me, what was comforting was like people just reaching out. And like I had like a cousin reach out. Like, so we went to this temp, we went to the temple for the first time. It's like three months after we lost Tessa. We went to the temple for the first time and I left just feeling like, oh, that was the worst experience ever. Like, I never want to go back. And Reed was like, that was so great. <laughs> honest. I love you guys being yeah, honest about and this. And I was just like, that night, I remember just being on my knees and just crying and being like, why? Like, I'm trying to do everything I'm supposed to. Like, Heavenly Father, why are you not helping me? Right? I had such high hopes going to the temple and hoping that I'd find all this peace and comfort. I'm leaving not having that. And so then it was like, that was like a Saturday. And then on Sunday, I had somebody like a cousin reach out to me and just shoot me a little text saying, hey, I thought about Tessa today. And I just need to let you know. And then like on Monday, I had a friend stop by who was pregnant. And she was like, I just want to let you know that I feel very differently about this pregnancy because it just feels more special. She's like, Tessa has changed my life. Changed. And it was like every day there was something. And those that were helpful, the texts from the cousin. Yeah. Like those were all like every day that week there was something. Like somebody reached out. Somebody. I had a neighbor say, hey, do you want to pack a picnic and go eat it at Tessa's grave? And I was like, oh, yes. And so I had some neighbors that would take me. Do you want to pack me. a picnic and go eat at Tessa's grave? Yeah. I think my biggest fear was that she was going to be forgotten. And so there was all these people just reaching out. And at the end of the week, as I was like writing in my journal, I'm like, oh, like, thank you, Heavenly Father. Like, I feel like that's how Heavenly Father was able to reach out to me or how I felt his love was through other people. And so it was just interesting. And I think that Reed was maybe a little bit different on that. He was like, he went back to work and was kind of isolated. And he was like, I just like being on my own. I like reading. I like, you know, studying these things. And so I I just think we had to figure each other out and figure out what was best for each of us. And they were very different. And that's okay. Yeah. Just kind of giving each other grace. So it could have been easy. Like Reed didn't, Reed doesn't show his emotions through tears. And I always show my emotions through tears. And so it could have been very easy to be like, you're not even crying. Like you don't even care. You know what I mean? But it's, yeah, we just figured it out. Yeah. I've thought of the, the worst things we could possibly say to each other. (laughs) And I think Amber's saying like, don't you even care? Like, why don't, why aren't you crying? I think that would have really hurt me. And if I would have said something like, you know, Amber, she's gone. We have to move on. Like you have to move forward there's no good in dwelling in the past. We got to keep going like that would have just killed Amber. And so it was really cool to 
just learn those things about each other, you know, and it was fun to see Amber have those experiences and kind of lighten up, you know, uh, we had a neighbor that knocked on our door and said, I don't know what to say to you. I just want to give you a hug. And he gave us a hug and walked away. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. He just said, I'm thinking of you. And that was special for Amber. She had a, you know, a friend reach out that she hadn't spoken to since high school. And I think she had had a dream of Tess or something. And so all this was after the temple experience where Amber had been on her knees and said, pretty much, God, where are you? And then the week after, like, I don't know. He's just, he's, he Here speaks so differently to okay. each of us. And um, sometimes it's hard to find where he's at. And I think it took a little bit of effort um, for, for both of us. Um, yeah, we're like two and a half years out now. And I still feel that sometimes. I still feel very much like, uh, where are you, Heavenly Father? You know what I mean? Like I'm still, we're still very much grieving and we still feel very tender. And so. Still have a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the thing that we do is just keep moving forward. And I don't know, we've had some good friends that we've met through support groups through this, um, through this organization, Share Parents of Utah. They um, do support groups and we've had great friends and they're all on different paths. Like we've had friends that have left the church over losing a child. We've had, we know a few that have gotten divorced because of losing a child. It just takes a toll. And I think it's, I don't know if there's any right answer on how to make it through. I don't even know if we can consider ourselves making it through or trying, but <laughs> I think it's just, it's a different, a difficult thing for anybody. That's a really good segment. I just, on behalf of our listeners, thanks for being so honest and vulnerable. I wrote down in a big circle, you said this, Tessa will be forgotten. And that would be, and that core, sort of at the core of you and, and how you're processing this. And, and I just, and I, then I love the examples of things that people did for both of you. And I've thought about that and I thought everybody can do what people did for you. Even the hug at the door meant, you still remember that two and a half years later, Reed, mm -hmm. that this guy came to the door and just gave you a hug. And the text from your cousin and the, and the friend who said, let's do a picnic at Tessa's grave. Those, that's what I love about, I love the things you're sharing because I recognize I can do all those things. I just sometimes don't know what to do. But if I understand maybe your core fear here is that Tessa will be forgotten. And all these things that I'm doing are honoring Tessa and not closing this chapter. I've even wondered if the conference talks and the temple are sort of efforts, not Reed was doing this, but just sometimes to close the chapter. And that's, you know, a great experience with a conference talk or a temple, and that's going to close the chapter and you can move on. And mm -hmm. you're not really wanting to close this chapter because yeah. you don't want to forget her. No one would mean that. The temple obviously doctrinally doesn't, is keeping this whole family together. But I do recognize where people can have, and I'm not sure that's why the temple was a hard experience. I recognize really faithful people have sometimes difficult experience with a temple or a conference talk or a scripture. And, as the, and I know Reed knows this too. It's just, it's everybody's journey to healing may be a little different, but I do love the way you link prayer um, with then this, these people that reached out to you and Heavenly Father wanting to take care of you. 
Definitely. Yeah. I felt like it was. And it took a while for me to realize that, right? Like this whole time just thinking, where is Heavenly Father? Where are you? And then writing it in my journal and seeing like, oh, like, I look at all of these things that happened this week. Like, oh, like there you are. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for placing these people in my life and allowing me to let them do that. Because I think that that's also been something difficult. A lot of times people will reach out and want to help. But like, it's easy to be like, no, like I'm fine. Like, no, I just want to be by myself. Or no, I just want to, I don't know, just grieve on my own, which I think there's a place for that for sure. But for me, it was very helpful to have others around me and to reach out and like you said, like that core to not have Tessa forgotten. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really helpful as we minister to people's kind of know what's at the core and, and uh, you articulated that very well and then connect the dots for me and listeners, just what, and I recognize that core is a little different for everybody. Sure. I'm probably a little more like Reed. I process things more alone. I don't have my emotions as close. I'm, I enjoy my alone time to process complicated things. Um, so I recognize all of us do that a little different. Just keep telling your story. This, you know, um, you could talk about your pregnant right now. Um, yes. to share that with our listeners. And I, is that an in vitro or a non in vitro? Share with us a little bit about where you are right now. So, yeah, we, um, we had Tessa two and a half years ago. And then probably about, it's almost been a year now, we decided, so we had Tessa and we decided, oh, like, that's it. Like, we're not going to do IVF again. The doctors have always told us that there's no way that you'll get pregnant naturally. And so we decided to do foster care. We've always kind of been drawn towards foster care. Took us a little bit to get there. We took a year off and just kind of grieved and tried to figure it out really that's probably good to go slow. I yeah. wanted to know what was next for us and kind of what was in place. And then Amber, she's always kind of, her heart's always been drawn that way towards either adoption or foster care. And as time went on, kind of felt closer to foster care. Yeah. So we probably about a year, year and a half after Tessa, we started the process of getting licensed to be foster parents and we got licensed and we got our first placement. We had a little, um, three-year-old boy that came and lived with us and, um, yeah, it kind of just shook up our world. (laughs) We were pretty, you know, we just have our one little boy who's six right now. And so we added a three-year-old to the mix and, um, yeah, it kind of shook up our world, but it was, it was so good. It was, it kind of filled this, not certainly filled the void, but just took up time that we had. We just had so much time and resources that we felt like we could dedicate to somebody. And it would have been dedicated to Tessa and we didn't get to do that. And so it was fun to kind of spend that time on uh, this little boy that came and lived with us. We had him for about about three and a half, four months before he moved on to a new placement. But um, yeah, during that time, it was very trying because he had a lot of behaviors, but it was very rewarding because we saw so much progress with this little guy. And um, during that time, we found out that we 
were pregnant just naturally. I mean, out of nowhere, we've been married 10 years and have never, you know, kind of gotten pregnant naturally. And we got pregnant naturally while we had this little guy. And so we were just shocked. In fact, we're shocked would be the right yeah, word. Yeah, we're I 20 can't. weeks along, <laughs> about 20 weeks, and we're still shocked. So I think that I don't know if the shock will wear off, but it also brings a lot of anxiety and stuff with it. But talk about the anxiety. What I can, I think our listeners and I can assume, but share a little bit of that with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I just feel really anxious about losing another baby. Sure, and um. Just that, I mean, you can imagine when we first lost Tessa, we had lots of questions on why, and we never got any answers. We ended up doing an autopsy and everything on Tessa, and um, the doctor said that she looked perfectly healthy, like all of her organs, everything inside, everything was well, and they had no explanation of why she passed away. And so they said that she was just happy and healthy until she wasn't because a lot of times they can tell when a baby's under stress. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times the baby will be under stress for a long time and then pass away. Mm -hmm. And Tessa had no signs of stress. And so, I mean, a lot of questions come up with that. Like, why then did we have to lose her? Like, and there's no reason. And so a lot of times like a natural thing is to feel guilty. Like I'm like, oh, maybe it's something I did. Maybe it's something. And so it makes me feel really anxious with this pregnancy to say like, I've got to make sure I do everything perfectly and I have to make sure, you know, and be like, oh, I'm not not lifting that. I'm not doing that because I just feel so anxious that I'm going to do something or that this pregnancy is not going to work out like like it happened with Tessa. And so we feel really anxious about that. And then I also feel really anxious about just losing another child. And so even towards Hiram, our six-year-old, I feel anxious that I'm going to lose him. So I feel worried about sending him to school every day. He goes to kindergarten right now and he rides the bus. And every day I send him off and I'm like, oh my gosh, like have a small panic attack, but I think we're just taking it day at a time and trying to get through this. And I mean, so excited, but what's the best thing people, as you open up being anxious, what's the best thing people can say to you? I think just like understanding because yeah, I think to minimize it, to be like, Oh, it's not going to happen again. You know, we've had a couple of people say like, it can't happen twice. And I'm like, you don't know that. Like it could happen twice. So minimizing it is not. Yeah. Minimizing helpful. is not the thing. So I think just like validating and being like, yeah, that would be really hard. Like I've had people say like, if you like want to talk, if you ever want to go on a walk, if you ever just need to get out and have some fresh air, like we don't even have to talk about your pregnancy. We don't have to talk about anything you don't want to, but just to get out and just like, just to have somebody to talk about, to, to talk with and walk with. And I think those things have all been really helpful. Do you know if this is a boy or girl? We don't know yet. We'll find out. We have an appointment tomorrow to find out. You're going to find out. Yep. So I guess by the time you listen to this, you'll we'll know. <laughs> Read your thoughts on becoming pregnant after 10 years or just anything you'd like to share. Yeah, we're just thrilled. We do recognize that this 
doesn't happen for everyone. So we feel blessed. Um, it's just kind of interesting. It's just a roller coaster. Roller coaster. Sometimes we feel bitter at God. And right now we feel blessed, but we might feel bitter here in a little <laughs> bit. But I, I think some we've learned that faith isn't in an outcome. It's just in God's will. And so, even though we don't know what's going to come, say that again. Faith isn't an outcome. Yeah, faith. I feel like I've learned that faith is not an outcome. And sometimes we believe that if we have enough faith, then we can make things happen. And I think God wants us to just put faith in him and whatever happens, we still trust and believe in him. And so I think I've gotten to that point where, where, you know, this whole foster thing and there's a lot of questions and I feel like we've gotten some answers, but I'm okay not having all the answers. And I just trust in his plan for us. And, you know, I might not agree with it in the moment, but I do trust in the end it's what's best. And so, um, I have felt it's just a big learning experience. Amber came to bed and it was probably after midnight and we had thought maybe we're pregnant at times before and she'd done some different tests and it was always negative. And she was saying, should I test? I'm like, no, don't get your hopes up. And then she tests without me knowing it was after midnight. She came to bed and woke me up and said, guess what? I said, what? <laughs> I was tired and I guess the tables are reversed since Mexico, but she woke me up and this is, yeah, we're going back and getting yes. woken up at night. And she said, I'm pregnant. And I just said, you're, you're lying to me. No way. So, uh, we were just thrilled. It was such a cool experience and couldn't believe it. Um, and again, this has happened before. So we've had an ectopic pregnancy. We had this stillbirth. We've also had a few miscarriages along the way, just everything in between. So, you know, she tells me she's pregnant and we've had that excitement before and well, we're 20 weeks and we're still there. So, um, we are, we are very excited that that's a lesson we've learned. Um, also the foster experience, you know, this little boy, it was possibly the hardest thing I've ever done was fostering him. He was definitely a challenge. But, uh, you know, a lesson we learned through foster care is that just because something is hard doesn't mean it's not worth it. And I think I grew a ton. I think Amber grew a ton. I think our little boy who had not had a sibling Interesting. really grew and learned how to deal with someone that had harder behaviors. And then to see this little foster boy grow was just really, really cool. And you know, we still see him now and again. He's with a, another family. We don't know what his and will be, but right now he's in a very positive, supportive, really great place. And so we still get to see him here and there and he's just full of energy, full of life. And it was really just a really cool experience to have that. And so we feel like we don't know what the future holds, but we do trust in, we trust in what will happen and it might not be what we want, but uh, we definitely trust in it. Talk, I think I'm speaking for myself right now. So. Talk to, uh, and you've done this already, but talk to couples that have just started this road, that have just had a devastating, you know, loss of a child. And they're just, you've been on this road for two and a half years. Talk to those couples. Um, I guess just hold on. It's so difficult. I don't know. I don't want to sugarcoat it at all, but it's so hard. And so just hold on. Um, I once was explained grief in, it's kind of an illustration. So if you think of a box 
And within that box, there's this button. And every time this button gets hit, it's like just overwhelming grief. And I mean, the first, I don't even know, like three, four months, I felt like every day was just overwhelming grief. Like that button was just getting pushed all the time. So they say there's this ball in this box and it rolls around and it pushes the button. And they say over time, that button is always there. And when that button gets hit, the intensity of grief is always there. It doesn't lessen, but the ball gets smaller. And so that button is hit less often. So right in the beginning, it feels like it's this giant ball and it's always hitting the button and you're always feeling overwhelmed with grief. And then as time goes, that ball just gets a little smaller and the button gets hit less often. And I feel like that's been really true in in my case, in our case, that the grief is still there and there are still days where it's very overwhelming, but they get fewer and far between. And so I just say, hold on and reach out. It's hard to reach out. It's hard to let other people support you and cry with you. But I don't know. I think that's been the best thing for us. So just hold on and allow people to love you and reach out if you can. Great, Amber. Reed, things come to your mind. Yeah, I think she, I don't know what more to add besides hold on. I love that advice. And there's just days where you feel like you can't hold on. So I don't know. Some It feels like a lot of times in the gospel, you receive answers without ever knowing it. And it takes a lot of time. So it's not until you look back over six months or you don't see it day by day. You don't see it hour by hour. But you do see over long periods of time the way that you've been able to heal. And um, so I just would probably double down on hold on. Has this changed you as a seminary teacher at Cottonwood, at our local high school, Cottonwood High? I know you were a great seminary teacher before <laughs> Tessa passed away. I assume, I mean, I know you're still a great seminary teacher. Has it changed any way that you teach or, or at times are there just lessons that you're able to talk from a more personal perspective? Yeah, I think it was definitely a changing point in my teaching, a turning point. Uh, teaching is not an easy profession. Teaching teenagers, uh, you know, they they don't always, they're not always super interested in what you have to say. And and then learning to how to get them to talk is difficult too. So they don't want to listen to you. And sometimes they don't want to talk either, which can make teaching a little bit difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like in my career, I've been teaching for about five or six years um, I had kind of struggled up to that point, feeling confident in myself, feeling confident Sounds. in my abilities and you know that maybe I wasn't the best teacher and seminary teachers, you know, they're really gifted. I have a lot of energy. They're really fun. And sometimes just kind of some of that comparison, uh, got to me and I wanted to be, I wanted to, I just really wanted to be a good seminary teacher. And so anyways, when I lost Tessa, I think I lost some of those desires and it was all just about the students. It wasn't about me so much. Um, I remember coming back to school and it might've been a little bit weird, but I had my students huddle up in each of my classes and we put our arms around each other. And they probably thought I was a little weird, but um, we just said a prayer and I said, I wanna say it. And just trying to let them know how much I loved them through prayer and how much they matter. And, and so I think I've been able to love more 
at the same time, you know, I don't know your thoughts on this, but just some different philosophies, some different thoughts. I think sometimes we think we have experiences that are life-changing. I don't think it changed me in one day, but I think it's changed me over time. And so again, I don't think I've seen that answer right away. I knew right away I wanted to be more loving. I wanted to give more hugs. Um, all the love that I was going to give to Tessa, I wanted to spread it out to the world. So I was oh, like, this cool. is what I'm going to do. And I still don't hug people very often. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of these things that I committed to do, it, it just doesn't happen. But I think over time, as I've continued to make efforts, that I've slowly become more and more of this loving type of person where I, you know, the students mattered more than what they think of me. And I can, I can tell them that I love them and, and not worry if they love me back, but just do my best and be okay with that. I think that's all we're ever asked to do. So it definitely was a turning point, but I think it's kind of taken time and it still will take time to, to just become that kind of person. That's a really honest segment. I recognize in a lot of professions, even in a seminary assignment, you're, I do that. I compare myself to others and people have attributes that I don't have. And I love your honesty with that. I think all of us do that, but I love your shifting away from that. Just so I'm going to love the kids. I'll bet there's some kids that can remember that prayer <laughs> for the rest of their life. I remember some things my seminary teachers did at Highland High School read, you know, 40 years ago that I can still remember. There'll be some students that remember you for the rest of your lives and things that you've forgotten that you've said to them or that group prayer, when they knew you were coming back, I assume they knew you lost a daughter and you had been gone for a few days. And I bet they, I bet that was very healing to them. Yeah. Again, and maybe in this point, you know, I think maybe I thought it might be a little bit odd, or, but that it was less where I didn't care as much what they thought. I just knew that it was what I thought would be best for us to feel love together. And so I think a lot of times we're afraid of other people's judgment, but it probably was a positive for those students and just kind of get out of my own head. Um, I know, I think, I believe, you know, Ephraim Maxfield. Yes. So I've taught Ephraim a few years and, you know, he's just one of these people that did a lot of the things that we've talked about. And for a teenager to do that, uh, you know, Ephraim would say, how's Tessa? And he would say, how's your wife? Wow. And his seminary teachers this were not supposed to, kid. yeah, as a high school kid. And seminary teachers were not supposed to hug our students, but Ephraim would hug me. And uh, just, uh, I knew that he had been affected by what had happened with Tessa and that he felt that. And, um, you know, kind of the tables were turned. I had a student kind of looking out for me. And I always really appreciated that about him. And I, you know, other students, I had a girl that never said a word all year long and She's from another culture. She made a bunch of little paper cranes, put it in a little bottle. And it was that way of kind of like sending these little paper cranes to heaven for comfort. Or it was just her way of saying, you know, I'm with you. And I never would have thought I would get it from that student. So that was really meaningful to me too, to get that from her. It's really cool. I love that. It reminds me when I was a YSA bishop and and my emotional gas tank was kind of running out. And there was a couple, there was two times I asked a YSA young man to give me a blessing. You know, he'd come in to visit with me and I just felt impressed uh, that he was partly there to give me a blessing. And um, those were very tender experiences for me. So sometimes 
in these situations, we need each other. And it's not necessarily age-related or experience-related or church assignment. We're just all the same human family that can help each other. I also recognize that um, because I've learned this from other couples, that having another child doesn't change anything about Tessa. This isn't a replacement child. This doesn't end your grief. In fact, if we even thought that, that would just add to your grief because the bottom of your, you don't want to do anything that Tessa will be forgotten. So I hope, I hope this next child causes us to talk about and remember Tessa even more. Yeah, I think so. Um, And talk about your beautiful family, including Tessa. So I think you, obviously, anything to add on that, that's something I wouldn't have known, but a few other people have taught me that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, we've had some friends that we've met through these support groups that have said like, oh, it's fine. Like you can just have another baby and that's the wrong thing to say. Another baby does not change. You know what I mean? Somebody does not change that grief. Like I used to say, all I wanted was a baby. Now all I want is Tessa. Like all I want is that baby. And so another baby does not change that. And we've had some um, friends who've had a pregnancy, like had another child after their loss. So kind of like in the same boat that we're in right now. And they said it almost makes those feelings a little bit more tender because when you have that newborn, you're like, it's, you're like reliving what you've missed out on, what you weren't able to have with that child. So it's complicated. Before. Yeah. And so I'm I glad think you're it, hearing these stories yeah, and it kind doesn't of, yeah. change anything. And for sure, we'll always miss Tessa and she'll always be missing in our family. Um, we are excited to add to our family, but yeah, we are definitely always going to miss Tessa and fill her void in our family. Anything else either of you'd like to add? I I do want to add just one more thing. I'm kind of more long-winded or sometimes I like to talk. So um, I think that the greatest lesson maybe we've learned is that we're, we're two different people. And even in our faith, you know, what we think about Heavenly Father and our ideas of who he is and how he treats his children and, you know, what he does. We we just, we don't have to be the same to be united. And uh, that's been a really cool lesson. So one of the things that I've done that's not scripture related, and maybe it might seem a little bit different or a little bit weird, but it's really personal to me is that I had my dad pass away in 2009 and that was very unexpected. And uh, him and my wife were actually... Er, him and my wife, him and my mom were actually preparing to go serve a mission together to be mission presidents. And so it just wow. kind of took him out of the blue and he was on a, he was on a bike ride and didn't come home. And so, um, anyways, we lost my dad and he was big into astronomy. And so this October sky and some of these different nights, um, I see Orion, which is really beautiful. And it's always kind of overlooking Venus and Venus is the brightest and the most beautiful star. And I always think of Venus as, as Tessa. And I think of Orion as my dad. And one of my favorite things, my dad, as he got older, got softer. And I think one of his favorite things to do was to be a grandpa. And so to see Tessa with her grandpa kind of overlooking her, and uh, to see Orion and Venus and in the mornings right now, it's just so bright and so beautiful. It's so clear. Like that's one way that I can kind of remember Tessa almost on a daily basis. When I get out of my car in the morning, it's still dark. I see Venus, I see Orion. 
and just sometimes even talk to the sky a little bit. But there's just a million different ways and all of us are unique and Heavenly Father speaks to us differently and we speak to him differently. You know, it's just all, it's all good. Love that, Reed. Anything else, Amber, you'd like to share? Um, I don't think so. I think that's great. Um, thank you. On behalf of all of our listeners, we've been talking about this podcast for quite a while. Reed and I have been changing trading messages, and I'm just so glad it was the right time to do this. And Amber and Reed Blackburn, we're just so thankful for you coming on and sharing part of your journey. I've been deeply moved by the things you've shared. You two are great. And you two are a blessing and helping a lot of people and have taught us how to help others and given us great insights in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>